Hey, Rockheads, it's time again for NDC, an incredible developer conference held annually in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will both be there, of course, but check out this all-star lineup. Troy Hunt, Rob Eisenberg, Scott Allen, Oren Eni, Michelle Bustamante, Damian Edwards, Brock Allen, Dominic Beyer, and many more. Register now at ndc-oslo.com. NDC, we'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1284, with guest Richard Turner. Recorded Friday, April 8th, 2016. Hey, guess what? We're back from Build. It's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. We're here for a thing we call .NET Rocks. How are you, Mr. Campbell? Well, you know, with time shifting, we're now back from Dev Intersection. Oh, my God. I love Florida. Florida was great. It was, it was amazing. amazing. We even went to Disney. And, <laughs> well, and we yeah. liked it. We had such a good time. Well, Richard Turner is here. We haven't talked to him in a long, 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 long time. We're going to geek Far out on some, on some hardcore command line stuff with him. But first, we have this little thing we call Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? And you told me offline I was going to love this. You are. Now, what do you think when you think command line? Um, UI-wise. UI-wise? There is no UI. It's like green screen. Yeah, but what are those little letters really technically called? Well, they're ASCII characters. ASCII characters, that's right. And you talk about ASCII art every once in a while, don't you? Only when I talk about Goliath. <laughs> how would you? How would you like a WYSIWYG ASCII art designer? Oh in, no! In really? a web page, go to ASCIIflow.com or oh, no. 1284.pwop.me or ASCII flow.com. You it goes right into an editor. You get tools. You can move objects around. You get arrows. You get drawing. You get boxes. This is going to be so popular now be- <laughs> because, you know, we're all this command line stuff like, yeah, ASCII art's important again. It really is. I know. Oh, no. Look at this. This is awesome. It's 1984 all over again. <laughs> well, the real question is, could I import a photo and ASCII-ize it? Now, that would, oh. be, that would be the thing, wouldn't it? Somebody's going to do it. And I think it's going to be one of our listeners. <laughs> Might even be Richard Turner. We don't know. Well, this is it for me. I'm off for the rest of the show. I got to draw. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Turner, what do you think of that? I am loving it. <laughs> loving it. The, the command line is cool again. ASCII art is cool again. What more could you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It only took 13 years. For uh, it only took 13 again. years. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I've gotten man. a little bit grayer since. And, yeah. uh, <sighs> we all. All right. Well, anyway. That's, all right. I love it, dude. This is awesome. Yep. That's what I got. Who's talking to us, Richard? Speaking of build, grabbed a comment off of show 1276, the one we published on March 31st, somewhere around, I think, 1030 or 1045 a.m. Pacific. Yeah. And for those who, this is the, sh- this was the show where we talked with Miguel and Nat in advance of all the announcements. So we knew what was coming, couldn't tell anybody. From and Xamarin. literally, I, th- 
we were hovering, right? Yeah. We, we were messing each other back and forth. Ready? Ready? Okay. Now. <laughs> and you publish the show and I fire off all the tweets and there, that's this show. I published it from my cell phone. I love it. In, at least I had, a, I had a computer out, but in the keynote, okay. Yeah. So, and this was the show where we talked about, I mean, obviously everyone knew about the acquisition, but this was the announcement. They said all the Xamarin bits are free. The open source licenses have been leveled. Yeah. You know, and, and as much as it was an amazing set of announcements, it was only a few minutes. So having a good hour to chat with the guys and really drill into, you know, what this looked like going forward was quite powerful. And we got a ton of comments. And this particular one, which kicked off a whole chain of conversation, was from uh, Philip Tencapi. Hope I got your last name right there, Philip. He said, thanks for a great show that delivered some of the greatest news. I've never been more excited to be a .NET developer. As a developer who's been working on Windows desktop applications for government organizations for the last nine years, dude, that's tough. Yeah. I've been waiting for a solution that would allow us to move on to mobile platforms with a reasonable amount of effort. Yep. With Microsoft integrating Xamarin with Visual Studio and .NET and giving it to subscribers for free, the path is now clear, and we can go down that road. Yeah. As one of you guys asked as well during the show, I was hoping for more information from Microsoft on what the roadmap looks like for further integration with Xamarin and Universal Apps. Right. And if they aim at UWP taking over Xamarin's multi-platform capabilities in the short or midterm. And... I guess we're allowed to say this. I think we asked this of Scott Guthrie in a private session, and he said, it's been 10 days. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think he said that in the keynote. He said, it's really only been 10 days. We're just getting started. So you can count on Microsoft to do what makes sense. And if you yeah. think through the possible scenarios, they're going to maximize every bit of that interrelationship that they can. Yeah. Yeah. And, you, and you know, there's also a big conversation about what's going to happen to Mono versus .NET Core and so forth. Sure. Which, you know, in the end, it, I think it's all going to be one common code base. That's yeah. what everybody wants. Right? It's we all, don't actually want different versions. Exactly. It'll all be good. And by the way, Richard, I wrote a blog post called Free Xamarin Technology Changes Everything. And you can get there by going to freezamarin.pwop.me. Sounds like a, 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 a protest sign. Free Xamarin. Nice. Free Xamarin. <laughs> Free Xamarin now. <laughs> and, and I, you know, this also doesn't end the conversation on the Cordova tools and so forth as well. No. We did that show a while back with Brian Noyes where he was talking about both. Yeah. And, you know, the, the compelling part about Xamarin is it's the C Sharp story. And that's for folks who love C Sharp, that's an awesome solution where the Cordova is the JavaScript story. And that's an awesome solution also. They just, they all need to get better. And I think that ties into today's shows as well. Awesome. Hey, Philip, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And definitely send us a tweet. We love tweets. We wash our toilets with them. And now let me introduce Richard Turner. He is the product manager on the Windows developer platform, open source team, an old friend of the show. Richard Turner, welcome back to .NET Rocks. Thank you for having me back again. I'm surprised uh, that you let me back on again, actually. I thought, it was, <laughs> I thought it was being uh, evicted or ostracized in some way. Oh, after well, I think that we hit the statute time. of limitations there, actually, because it's been like seven years. <laughs> oh, I think you were pretty, pretty well behaved last time, but I can't remember exactly. I probably wasn't. 
uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we were sitting in a goldfish bowl type type thing at a conference at the time. Right. Um, but yeah, it was a while ago. But great to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, sure. I found it. The Identity Panel at TechEd 2007. Wow. 2007. Good grief. <laughs> wow. That's that well past the statute of limitations. <laughs> yeah, you did, you did a lot of work on identity for, for a while, card space and that kind of thing. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, no, card space was uh, um, um, a big, bold bet. Um, it unfortunately, it didn't pan out for a variety of reasons, but it was a very, very exciting project to work on. And it advanced um, the knowledge and the, the, mm. the intent of getting to this identity server kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, the, the ironic thing is that we're now another almost 10 years on from that time frame. Mm -hmm. And we can put man on the moon, we can stick Teflon to metal, but we're still using usernames and passwords to log in everywhere we go. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, true. <laughs> it, it, it causes me physical pain every time I have to do this. Yep. Um, but... Unfortunately, there isn't yet a better way of doing it that has gotten broad adoption. So we tried to do that with, with Identity Matter System and, and Card Space on Windows. Um, mm. But for a variety of reasons, it didn't work. Who knows? Maybe one day it will wake back up again. And, uh, or or, or <laughs> everything that is old becomes cool again, right? And so. speaking of cool, we're not here to talk about identity. We're talking about the command line. And it's cool. Not, on, not only is the Windows command line cool, PowerShell is cool, and now Bash yep. on Windows. What's and Bash next? Bash on Windows as well. Uh, I, I could tell you, but then I'd have to shoot you. But <laughs> <laughs> You <laughs> wait till the end of the show to shoot me, uh, and then everybody yeah, will know. Yeah, absolutely. I wait until the end. I can just slice that bit off. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, we, we're, we're doing, some, doing some fun things at the command line again, which is, which is amazing to think that we've gone again full circle. The command line is where we all started. Right. Um, right. And we through the GUI world, and the, you know, GUIs are still incredibly useful and incred incredibly productive. Mm. But there's an awful lot that's being done at the command line these days. And uh, Windows has, has not necessarily kept up with a lot of those advancements, but we are piling in right now to, to help remedy some of those problems yeah. and, uh, and to, to, to fix some of those problems with some really interesting creative solutions like bringing real bash and real native Ubuntu and, and Linux command line tools to run natively on Windows. So for folks who didn't catch the keynote or hear this whole story, we've dug into mm -hmm. it further. What's different now? Because we've had that Linux feeling on Windows for a while when you think about stuff like Sigwin. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I've used Sigwin for years and years and years, and it's a, it's a great tool set for, um, for many, many, many types of development scenarios. Uh, in particular, because the Sigwin tools are essentially Win32 ports, of the GNU uh, command line toolset, the the commands that you type when you when you are inside Sigwin and you know, you're you're orking and setting and so on, those tools are Win32 applications. So mm. they appear to Windows as if they're any other Windows command line tool. They have access to other um, Windows applications as well as GNU tools, and you know they're, they're deeply integrated or they're they're natively integrated into the Windows experience. But they're not Linux, right? You said but they're, they're not Linux. Yeah, it's the, yeah. It, the it even says on Sigwin.com and that's CYGWI. And get that Linux feeling. It's kind of like yeah. vanilla flavored ice cream. You know, it is, it is exactly that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it tastes delicious. It's wonderful for many things, but unfortunately, I mean, and I had personal experience of this. You know, I've only actually been back at Microsoft now just over a month, and I came back to Microsoft specifically to work on these features hmm. um, because wow. I was scratching my own personal itch. 
Yeah. Uh, so I spent the last six years, I, I was at Microsoft until 2010, left and I've been out in the real world for the last six years where I've been doing an awful lot of work in development and PMing and so on in the open source community uh, within even you know, uh, um, um, real commercial corporations, but using open source a lot internally. And just last year, I spent the first six months of the year working on projects that were using a lot of Ruby, a lot of Java on Vertex, and all kinds of interesting bits and pieces going on uh, there. Um, but trying to work on those projects from a Windows machine was agonizingly painful. Um, one of the things that you come to realize very qu quickly is that although Ruby, for example, has been ported to work very nicely on Windows, there are a large number of Ruby gems out there in the various repos and, and, and so on that, that do not work on Windows. That yeah. they are, they may just be wrappers around Linux binaries or, or ELF, which is like the, the, um, the binary format for, for Linux executables and, and libraries. Um, the, 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 a lot of the gems are just wrappers around these these native Linux binaries, or they depend upon a certain file system layout yeah. or a characteristic behavior of Linux, which things like Sigwin don't mimic accurately. Yeah. So when you try to just use, you know, incorporate or build those uh, those Ruby projects on your Windows machine, they often struggle. Then you drop down to Sigwin, and you may get a little bit further. But ultimately, if you incorporate any gem or any library or any npm package, if you're using Node, for example, that has a hard dependency on something Linux, then you're into a into a world of of complexity. Um, so in Windows, you know, my my answer to this was, well, hey, I can fire a Piper V. And I can throw in a, a Linux uh, a server distro into that Hyper-V instance. Mm -hmm. And great, now I can SSH into that Hyper-V instance and I can work on my code. I can build my code. I can execute my code because it's working within the Linux VM, which is great. Except that the developer workflow is not as smooth as you think because if you want to work within Windows on some of the code, you know, Windows has got some really great uh, IDs and editors and code tools of a, of a variety of kinds. If you want to work on some of your code in Windows, then how do you get it over to the VM? Right. So yeah. I ended up having to check code into my local Git repo, push that Git repo, SSH into my Linux instance, pull the code out uh, from the from the, Git the uh, GitHub project. Uh, in the Linux instance and then build it and run it there. And jumping back and forth across this very high wall essentially was, was not very productive. So I kind of, I kind of lost hope and I went, well, you know, what do I do as a Windows developer? Um, and it was at that point where I started reaching out saying, so, so who owns the Windows command line at Microsoft? Yeah. And, and what's going on? Is there any investment in this space? What's the story? And so I, I got put in touch with someone. And, uh, literally tweeted and got put in touch with someone. And I emailed them a, a completely out of the blue email. And they said, hey, come for lunch. And I came for lunch and they said, hey, so we're really investing in the command line story. We're, we're doing a ton of work on the console. We're really scrubbing this thing that hasn't been scrubbed for many, many, many years, uh, making a bunch of improvements. I said, great. And they said, and there's one other thing. And I said, tell me you're bringing back Interix, <laughs> which became services for Unix um, back in the day. And they said, no better than that. And I said, what? And they said, we're running Ubuntu on Windows. I said, but I can already do that. And they said, no, 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 not in a VM. We're running Ubuntu on Windows. We're running Ubuntu binaries on Windows. 
And I, I nearly fell off my chair. I could not believe what I was hearing. Now, and they it said, still hey, sounds insane. Yeah. Can no, you tell sorry. us, geeks and developers and IT wonks, what that really means? I mean, like, yeah. does it work in a VM? Or does it um, <laughs> exactly what's going on? Are you recompiling the source to run on .NET? What is going on? That 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 is exactly the the first two questions I asked as soon as I was told what this, what they were doing. I said, "So this is just a VM, right?" And they said, "Nope, there's no Hyper V involved." Ah, okay. So you're what do you do? What are you rebuilding? Do you have like a dynamic recompiler? Because you know Microsoft and various other companies. I remember DEC had a dynamic recompiler to compile Windows binaries, uh, x86 binaries, to run on Alpha processors back in the day. Um, and they said, "Nope, we're not touching the binaries." And I said, oh, "So, so hang on. So you've you've got what a Linux process subsystem within Windows?" Yeah. Okay, and you've implemented the the POSIX and Linux subsystem uh, syscall interface, which is essentially the list of functions that are exposed to every every Unix Linux process right down at the very bottom layer, which gives uh, user mode code access to functionality in the kernel. So functions like read, write, open, close, fork, wait, yada, yada, yada. Those, those most core functions, um, they are actually well-defined in a POSIX standard, uh, which Linux then uh, also extended to add some extra capabilities. Hmm. Um, and what Microsoft's done is, is basically done what Linus did all those years ago. Yeah. Because when Linus wanted to create his own open source kernel, he started by implementing the, the core POSIX syscall functions mm -hmm. in his new kernel, and uh, implemented those in brand new code that wasn't derived from from uh, uh, Unix itself. So we did essentially the same thing. We said let's let's implement the syscall interface uh, interfaces, the syscall functions, which call into Windows kernel code instead of into Linux kernel code, so that when you say open a file, it opens a file via Windows kernel. When you say close a file, it closes. When you say read, it reads, and so on and so on. And we implemented a bunch of those syscalls, and we managed to get um, real ELF binaries loaded and then bound to those syscalls and then executed as if they were running on native Linux. So what we end up with is the ability to load unmodified Linux binaries, uh, wow. POSIX-compliant, uh, Linux uh, API-compliant binaries, um, and execute them natively on top of Windows as if they were running on top of Linux. Huh. Um, and dogs and cats are living together in complete harmony, and so on and so on. That's if you think about what that really means. <laughs> the implications are huge, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, it's not just Bash Shell. That's not where it stops. Obviously, I mean, you yeah. don't have to be a rocket scientist to sort of look down the road and see what's coming. Well, you know, many things could come in the future, and we're 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 not quite certain where this is all going to go. We know we're going to need to take an awful lot of feedback from the industry, from users, as to what they want to do with this thing, and so on. In its first version right now, what we're focusing on doing is essentially scratching the itch that I had last year, is solving that pain point for developers. Where if you're a developer and you need to work on a project that incorporates maybe a Windows phone app and a desktop app, you know, Windows Universal app or something like that, that talks to a Ruby backend. And as most or a lot of developers these days are full stack developers, they'll work on front and back end stuff at the same time. But instead of having to fire up VMs and jump over the wall, 
they'll now be able to load up Bash alongside Visual Studio and alongside the Windows command line and run all of their tools locally without having to invoke VMs and so on and so on. So I'll now be able to check out my, my Ruby project and work on that just as I would if I had used a Mac or a Linux box. And alongside it on the same machine, I'll then be able to work on my UWA app or whatever it is that I'm, I'm currently cranking on. Wow. And Miguel sort of said this off the cuff during that keynote where he said, <laughs> I don't need a swivel chair anymore. <laughs> and he yes, said it so fast, so dry. Now. I think it, a lot of, it just went by a lot of folks. But it's like we talked about this with Brian Noyes, too. We were talking about trying to do modern mobile development where you're literally that cycle of write some code, compile some code, run the code and see what happened involves yep. so many different devices. You're moving all over the place. Absolutely. I mean, at home, I've got uh, like an L-shaped desk that is probably has a circumference in the order of about 14 feet. Because, of course, you've got to have, you've got to have multiple widescreens for your main machine. And then I've got, so I've got, I've got two sort of 24-inch uh, dull screens with my Surface in front of it. Next to that, I've got a machine that's running Ubuntu. Next to that, I've got my Mac. And then to the left of it all, I've got like four or five devices, a couple of tablets, a couple of phones, all lined up with little sort of, you know, those those stick-on holders that you put on your car dashboard. Right. Uh, they're right. actually stuck to the desk. And it looks like it looks like the mission, mission control. It's insane. And I really do have to swivel and slide back and forth all day long to, yep. to access all this machinery. So if I can shorten that path, if I can now just sit at one set of screens and be able to do the same thing that I used to have to use three or four machines for – that's that's really compelling. Well, and and I've, and I've gotten smitten with this idea as I'm talking to more folks about how long is your cycle from yeah. write the code to see it running, figure out what's wrong, and get back to writing code again. The, and exactly. All these different techniques they have. It's different set of steps to get there. So you know, and the guy who can cycle fastest tends to win. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Totally agree. And that that that. The degree of productivity that one can experience through modern-day development tools and so on is extraordinary. I mean, I remember, gosh, I mean, I've been coding for far too many years now, but I remember back in the day with Ball and C++, we had this massive application that we were building, and it literally took two and a half hours to build incrementally. So any change we made, if you wanted to find out if it worked or not, you built it, you waited for the build to finish, and you ran it. And you can only do that two or three times a day. Nowadays, yeah, and and which seriously limits things, yeah, yeah, and that's I think that that's why I think a lot of people, for example, really like the the JavaScript development experience. You know what they do with Node, for example, because it's there's no compilation steps, so they get to be very productive or get a sensation of being very productive in that they don't have to wait long periods of time and twiddle their thumbs while they're waiting for something to churn away. Mm, they can just right. run it, boom, and it's up there and running. Yeah. Now, obviously, you know, there, there are costs to that as a development experience as well, especially when you're working in a larger team on a very big, complex project. Um, you know, that can actually sometimes be a hindrance, having that much flexibility. But that feeling of, I don't need to wait for stuff to happen, yeah. is really important. And I think that's why a lot of, a lot of developers today use more command line than they've ever used in the past, or maybe returning to using command line tools um, as they might have in the past, because instead of having to click half a dozen, maybe a dozen things on the screen in order to build, uh, test, deploy your system, 
Instead, you can edit your code, maybe do some initial checks within your IDE or within your editor to make sure that your syntax is correct, for example. A lot of that is done in line now, thank goodness. Mm. Um, but then you drop down to your command line and you type build or make or whatever it is that you're using to, yeah. to kick off your build process. And then it goes and does a ton of stuff in, in a fraction of the time it would normally have taken you to do the same using a GUI. I like right. so. You know, we see Grunt and Gulp and Make and CMake and mm. Pasake and Sake and Rake and all these different build tools that can all be chained from one to the other. And now we can we can stitch together a workflow so that whenever I made significant change, I can kick a process that builds it, that tests it, maybe deploys some stuff to a staging environment, runs a bunch of post-deployment tests, and then kicks up a UI and says, "Yep, everything went good." Yeah, that great, whole great. that whole um, building paths and uh, input and output stuff has been a great feature of Linux, and it's one of the most the things I like about it the most. Yeah, is just being able to compose you know, this to that and this to that. Uh, another thing at Bill they talked about was bots. And I love, yeah. I've played around <laughs> with the bot framework and, and I started thinking about using bots in terms of command line tools, you know, so that you could say in plain English, you know, who is customer number 435? And right, then you could exactly. just get some information. Um, that kind of thing works really well in, in a command line world. Do you see that, yeah. you see bots sort of, coming into our command line in, in ways that help us with development? You know, it's funny. I was actually uh, mowing the lawn at the weekend, so I was sitting on my, on my Lamborghini, um, which is this. <laughs> this did, you say, lawnmower. did you say it was a Lamborghini? Is that what you a said? Lawnbergi- <gasps> I'm using that from now on. That's awesome. <laughs> I have dollars about stitching that together. $50, please. <laughs> so my, my, my dad back in the UK has a, has a red, uh, lawn, red ride on lawnmower, and he calls it his Ferrari. So when we came over here and we moved into a house in the forest last, a couple of years ago, so I finally managed to get myself a ride on, hmm. and it's orange. So, of course, Lamborghini is one of their core uh, show-off colors is orange. So, it's become my, my Lamborghini prior to what you just said. Yeah. So, I'm sitting on the Lamborghini, and I was listening to, <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to you guys on Windows Weekly, right. I think it was, just uh, uh, that was published last week after Build. Yep. And right. you were talking there about how bots could be incorporated into so many scenarios where yeah. – we can. And I'm, not, I'm not even thinking about the voice-controlled side of things. Just having something that can almost act like a like a Turing ma- machine test. Yeah. But something that can respond to command line given instruction. Right. And can be incredibly flexible. I would love to see how we can stitch together the bot framework with perhaps a, a build automation tool Absolutely. or something like that. Yeah. Uh, that would be incredibly cool. Wouldn't it? So, so it, I was just thinking about that. So, yeah, maybe we should maybe we should get together and put a a little open source project together and get a bunch of people to pile on it. Sounds and great. And see if we can maybe come up with something cool that stitches together Jenkins and an automated test framework or something, and see if we can control it using a bot framework. That'd uh, be pretty cool. I like it. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to read the New York Post headline after build. Microsoft developers bash in Windows. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We literally couldn't have paid for a better headline, right? <laughs> as good as it gets. Uh, it's actually time to give away a music to code by complete collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. 
But first, Music to Code By is a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized, quiet and groovy instrumentals scientifically designed to promote focus. They'll get you into a state of flow and keep you there. And .NET Rocks fans are being more productive with Music to Code By every day. And now we have a site license. This was a request of one of our customers who wanted to just buy it once and then allow everybody in the office or in the organization to share it. And so we have that now. So see what all the fuss is all about. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is David Ward. Ah, congratulations, David. Golf clap for you, sir. David replied to my email. He says, is this spam? Really? This can't be real. <laughs> yes, it is, David. <laughs> At least he didn't call you a Nigerian prince. I know. Yeah, it's true. It is real. And if you send me 50 bucks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. In order to unlock the millions that are coming your way. Well, uh, anyway, if you don't know what we're doing right here, go to .netrocks.com. Click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. We've been doing this for years now. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology, a shopping spree, to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And gee, we've done this four or five years now, haven't we, Richard? Yeah. Yeah. So, you got to sign up to win. And we also like to ask our guests, Richard Turner, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Now, I, I, I thought about technology, and I thought if I buy any more, my wife's going to kick me out of the house. Um, <laughs> so you want to buy a shed, basically. <laughs> well, I have a shed. That's, that's, where the, that's where the Lamborghini goes, right? But, uh, <laughs> that is so stuck. Um, so <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be allowed to get any more technology. I don't think I'm going to be allowed to get any more motorcycles, um, uh, which is another love thing of mine. Um, mm. so I, I started looking around and I thought, wouldn't it be awesome if I actually learned to ride them properly? And then I thought, hang on. Um, the, the, the California Superbike uh, school might be quite cool. Go mm. on like a two, three day course there, learn how to really lean over and so on. That might be kind of funky. But then I remembered that in the, in the town in, uh, in Washington state that I live in here, it's actually the, the town in which they filmed, uh, Twin Peaks, uh, called North Bend. We have this really cool company called Dirtfish. If you go to dirtfish.com, yeah. Wait a minute. I see a restaurant. No, no it's I'm not. So you'll you'll <laughs> nice. like this. This is this is why I want to do a three day course at. Okay. So go to dirtfish.com. Oh it's a World Rally Championship quali uh, 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 qualified rally driving school. Wow. Oh, yeah. Where you can take Subaru Impressors and a variety of other crazy all wheel drive and two wheel drive uh, rally cars, and you can go and really learn how to drive rally driving. And Which is, if you've not driving. seen it, it doesn't get good coverage, unfortunately, here in in uh, in the states. But this is you look at dirt tr dirt track, and then you then you watch the WRC, the World Rally Championship, and you realize how utterly utterly insane a human being can be. So you know what? <laughs> I see a business opportunity for a guy who opens a line of car washes that around that school. 
<laughs> be... <laughs> there actually is one not far away and you do see a lot of cars going through there sure the lines um, are out the but door. it's out in the forest and i mean these 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 training courses and the i've actually been out to the facility it's phenomenal it's right in the middle of the forest miles away from anywhere it used to be a warehouse a logging plant hmm. and they bought this huge huge plot of land and the forest around it and they literally fly WRC drivers in from all over the world and they, they go through training and, and so on at this location. And you can buy like half day, one day, two day, three day courses. I'd love to do the three day, which, the which three almost takes day you to rear wheel ultimate rally techniques. Yeah. So three Absolutely. days, 3000 bucks. You can still yeah. get a hat. Right. Exactly. And the, the, the uh, three day all wheel drive ultimate rally ch- uh, techniques is $4,000. And I go. figured that with the remaining dollars, uh, that would probably re- uh, that would probably be spent at the nearby bar each evening afterwards <laughs> just to calm your nerves. So I'm pretty sure you'd be utterly tweaked coming off that off that. Uh, oh yeah, I know. You guys save some money for laundering your shorts. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to go there. I'm glad you did. <laughs> Holy yes. cow! Now this does look like a riot. Yeah. But yeah. you will scare the snot out of yourself. No two ways Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. You can sometimes hear them in the in the summer in particular. You can sometimes hear them distant in the background. And I live about five miles, six miles away from this place. Um, and you can sometimes hear the crack of the engines, and it's it's awesome. I'd love That's to do awesome. this. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, we, we've had this conversation with a few guests now. It's like, I don't need any more stuff. I'm looking for experiences. And this yeah. seems like an experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can always replace stuff, right? And stuff, stuff needs replacing mm. so often that it, that's that's just a challenge to keep up with. But but something like this, I'm not sure I'd ever forget. Yeah. So, can we talk about the challenges of sort of merging the security models of Linux <laughs> and Microsoft Windows? This is something that Richard pointed out very very early on, which is. The Bash shell is great, but you know one of the great things about running in Linux is you run as a user and then elevate your privileges on a command-by-command level with sudo. And that's not how Windows users work. Windows developers typically log in as administrator, and then it's about sort of tamping down all of the things that, that you can do as an administrator rather than uh, elevating privileges. Right. So, um, just before we get there, let me set a little bit of context because, um, in order to understand how the, uh, the, the Linux subsystem on Windows works and how it integrates and where it integrates and so on, you need to understand that a little bit before we can really get into the security. So, um, so it's important to understand a couple of things. One of which is, uh, A, this is a very early technology. We're releasing it in beta form for RTM. Uh, we've just, uh, two days ago, launched the first version of it that you can actually go and play with. It's and it is part of Windows 10 as well, right? And it's part of Windows 10. You need the x64. Uh, this won't yep. work on x86. Um, so it's part of the next wave of Windows 10, the anniversary update wave. And um, this is specifically a developer tool set. We're not currently planning for this to be a server hosting infrastructure. This isn't going to be something you're going to want to build production level server infrastructure upon. This is specifically a tool right now to fit, to help smooth out the developer workflow. As we described uh, just before the break there, um, when we talk about 
um, you know, making it easier to work on projects that incorporate a lot of open source uh, in in uh, uh, in them to work well on Windows as well as on Linux. So um, that's important to understand. And it's also important to understand that in this first version, the way that the system's been implemented is that it really is a pretty standalone, pretty um, genuine Linux experience on Windows. So to the degree that you can't actually call Win32 applications from within Bash on Windows. Oh my. Right? So when you're in Bash on Windows, you are literally within something that is, you know, some, some N tenths of the way from being real, a real Linux POSIX compliant environment. So you can't call Win32 apps, and similarly right now, Win32 apps can't reach inside the Linux environment and run Linux tools directly. You can call Bash and pass in a script and have Bash execute that script, but you can't see what the output is from the Windows side right now. Hmm. We're looking at this for, for future versions. Um, but what it means is that you know, as a developer, I can open up Bash and I can... Uh, I can apt get git, I can bring down my git projects, I can work on them within the Linux environment in a very high fidelity environment that allows my projects to work like they wouldn't if, in some cases if they, if they fail to work on Windows. Um, so I can work in a very genuine experience there. Um, I can also, the, the one interrupt point we do provide right now in V1 is I can access the local Windows file system from within Linux. Okay. So if I'm nice. in, if I go into Bash, I can go to I can I can CD WAC MNT, which is short for mount. So WAC MNT, WAC C, WAC, and any anything underneath C is the root of my C drive. Mm. Same for D drive right. and so on, as long as they're fixed drives. Okay, so I can I can get at the files on my Windows file system. Uh, I can also just work within the lin a, a, an emulation of the Linux file system, so I get all of the Linux file system characteristics and behaviors in terms of funky characters that Linux file system supports that Windows doesn't, um, long paths, etc., etc., etc. But I can't call Windows applications from within Bash. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, okay. With that That's said. Fair. One of the things that you'll notice about the first version of, of Bash on Windows is that when you first log in and you start this thing up and you get it installed and yada, um, we go and download the Ubuntu image, um, which is provided by Canon Canonical. Um, we extract that to your machine, and then we start up Bash for you. Now, when you do so, you're started as root. Right. Okay, so in this first For better version, or worse. For better or worse, you start as root. Because it's important to understand that we don't plan on making the, the Linux user account mechanism, which we are fully implementing. Uh, sorry, we are uh, fully. We are implementing in subsequent builds. I'm actually running a build on my machine right now that, in fact, when you first install it, asks you to create a user account, a mm -hmm. Linux user account. Mm -hmm. um, in the first version that we're shipping, you're just root right now because we hadn't quite finished that work, but we didn't want to hold it back from getting into users' hands. But we're not treating that user account mechanism, the Linux user account mechanism, as a security boundary. Okay. Right. All right. So that what that means is that when you, in future versions, and right now, as I said, you'll, you'll be root in the current version. In a future build, you'll be, when you first sign in, you'll notice that you're asked to create a user account. 
you'll operate within under the auspices of that user account within Linux. And in order to do to make system-wide changes within Linux, you'll have to sudo, um, uh, you know, a certain set of commands, uh, sudo app get install, yada yada. And that will all work as you would expect it to if you were running on top of Ubuntu. Okay. Cool. Now, again, even when that new user account infrastructure appears in, in future builds, we're still not advocating that as a security boundary. So if you share a login with somebody else, they will actually be able to log in as root on that, on, uh, when they open bash. Hmm. And they will be logged in as root, and they will then be able to act as root on that Linux uh, subsystem. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Within that Linux subsystem. But importantly, and this is where the mapping to Windows comes in, if you start Bash as a normal, as the normal logged in user, just as you would normally start up PowerShell or, or Command Line or, or Explorer or any other application, that application runs without administrator, administrator rights, um, with the permissions granted to the currently logged in user, as any other command shell would. So even okay. if, even if you go in, you open up bash and you type sudo blah, you still don't get elevated rights there. You get mm. your rights essentially elevated within Linux, but they don't affect your Windows rights. Okay. And is that so by design or is that for now? That's that's by design. This is how we plan on this work. It makes sense. You really don't want to cross-contaminate security models, do you? Exactly, yeah. I mean, the, the, the way that Windows security works and the way that Linux security works, um, you know, they can both be used to secure your environment to an extraordinary degree, but they do so in different ways. And trying to, you know, I often, I often use the analogy that we're essentially trying to mix oil and water in many of these cases. Right. And this is a really good example of where we're trying to mix uh, oil, and oil and water in terms of trying to uh, figure out how to make the Linux experience when running in Bash on Windows authentic to a, to a Linux user and to Linux applications, but also not allow that to bypass the Windows security model, for example. So if, for example, you were in Bash and you wanted to, if you try and do an, an RM-RF, which is a recursive force delete uh, of, of everything under C, uh, everything under mount C, which essentially would try and delete everything on your C drive, so long as you aren't running Bash as an elevated process, it would fail to do so because it's not allowed to delete uh, Windows, it's not allowed to delete program files, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, if you run bash elevated and then do rimref, then you might have some interesting experiences. Uh, but you would have the same experiences if you did a recursive delete under PowerShell if you ran it um, um, elevated. Rimref. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the, said, said the general rule here is, you know, as we've been saying for years, don't run applications elevated unless you absolutely need to and you're really sure what you're doing. Um, just run them as normal user, and that will provide you a huge amount of protection. Uh, and within Bash, then, when you're running within Bash, um, run as a normal user account as much as you can, and only sudo when you absolutely have to. Um, so those those rules still apply. Um, but the, the, the user account infrastructure within Bash is local to a user's configuration, and it's not a security boundary. Yeah. Okay, so so if we share a machine, let's say let's say uh, we go to a conference and and Carl's machine packs up, so I give him a login account to my machine. 
when you log in under your account, you don't get to see my Bash instance. You don't get right. to see my user accounts. That's all stored per user in my user's app data folder. Uh, so each user gets their own Bash environment, their own Bash configuration settings, their own Bash users, um, and they're, they're isolated by Windows user account. That's the security boundary, essentially. So it's the usual workflow for a developer, then you're working in studio, you get to a compile point, you drop to bash and run a script that picks up those files and goes through the additional steps. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, it, so, so that's actually a really good example. So if I'm, if I'm a developer, I've got a project on my local C drive. I'm working on it in Visual Studio. It's all work. You know, I'm writing the code. I get to a point where maybe I've incorporated a gem or a, or an npm package or something that that right. kind of misbehaves on Windows. Then I can yes. just open up Bash and I can cd to cd mount um, uh, whatever drive I'm on, whatever folder I, my source code is in, mm-hmm. and then within there I can run make and boom, it's it's building and it's running. And I mean, at least at this point, it's the primary reason to do this is because you're using pieces that don't run well in Windows, but do yes. run well in, in Linux. Yes, exactly. I could, I mean, the other part that I like about this is if my destination for this app is Linux, the fact that my all my build processes and so forth are as close to what the production site will look like is, that's only goodness, right? Like That's mm, just going to yeah. save me grief. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you know, ultimately, if your target is Linux or Unix... And and you depend upon behaviors in Linux and Unix. You know, we, we, you may be working on a Ruby project that you intend to run on Windows. Maybe right. it's a it's an inter- interdepartmental website or you know something inside your enterprise, and you run Windows everywhere. You should probably focus on building that on Windows rather than building on Linux if you don't right. have the Linux in- infrastructure available. That kind of makes sure that you don't take a dependency on a gem or something similar that that is bound or, or takes a has a hard dependency itself on Linux. Um, stay in Windows for that kind of scenario. But where you're working with colleagues, some of whom might be on Macs, some of them might be on uh, on Linux machines, and or your target server infrastructure, for example, is Linux, then it might actually behoove you at some point to move to building this thing in Bash, because at least you can you can be fairly sure that, at least once we've finished <laughs> implementing all of the syscalls that are necessary, that you have a good, stable Linux-like environment locally to your dev machine to make sure you get that high productivity development experience. And then when you check your code in and you commit it up the tree, then hopefully your automated CI-CD system kicks in, drags out your code, tests it in a Linux environment, and then deploys it to right. the production system. And you're, you're, you're reducing the risk in that scenario that what you've done has, an inc- has incorporated a hard dependency on Windows, for example. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can comment on this or not, Richard, because it's been a little bit in the press, but is this where Project Astoria went? <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so some of the stuff that's in uh, Windows Subsystem for Linux, some of that stuff did come from Astoria. Um, we didn't take everything from Astoria, but there were some core parts of it, some of the uh, Cisco uh, implementation layer, because, of course, Astoria was trying to get uh, Android applications to run on Windows. Right. And Android right. itself uses uh, the Linux kernel. So some of the Syscall implementation was done. Um, but we had to do a bunch of extra engineering work because we're now running full Linux 
and a full full uh, Ubuntu user mode uh, on top of what it thinks is a full Linux kernel. And there are a bunch right. of things that those tools use that the Android subsystem doesn't. Um, plus, we were able to take advantage of some very cool new infrastructure and technology that's within the Windows kernel um, that, uh, that, uh, that, that, that really helped with being able to create lightweight processes and, uh, and have a really good security boundary between them. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're essentially, you know, it's again, it's mixing oil and water. You have the Windows process model, you have the Linux process model, and while they have some similarities at a ten thousand foot view, they're also very different in many ways. Um, so we needed to make sure we had a good, solid infrastructure that we could build this on, and so we used some a bunch of new stuff as well. So should we give up hope of ever seeing native Android apps running on a Windows desktop machine? Should we give up hope? Uh, <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, that that's a question you have to ask somebody else. I'm afraid. Uh, <laughs> you know, the other angle on this is: is this an indictment of PowerShell? So, hmm. uh, so I would say absolutely not. Uh, I mean, PowerShell is a fabulous tool. My my entire Windows development workflow is built on PowerShell. I've been using sure. PowerShell. Gosh, since I think the first time I saw it actually was when I was working on Windows Communication Foundation years ago. This mm-hmm. is like. 2003 four time frame. Um, and I first saw the, the inklings of it then, uh, because we, we were building our management infrastructure and exposing ourselves in a way that what became PowerShell could call into. It was Monad. Uh, the Monad, Monad right. stuff, exactly, right. yeah. Um, so I've been, I've been a huge PowerShell user for, user for years and I will continue to be a huge PowerShell users, user for years to come because there is, there is still no, command line tool set that is so deeply integrated into everything that Microsoft ships as PowerShell. If you yeah. want to administer practically every aspect of Windows itself, if you want to be able to administer SQL and Exchange and Hyper-V and yada, 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 then PowerShell is absolutely the best bet for that. And sorry, as, as I mentioned, right. the, the, the Bash infrastructure doesn't even know it's running on Windows. So how is it going to modify the registry right now? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. It uh, how how like does that. it make WMI calls? Because it, it doesn't know it's running on Windows. Has no notion yeah. that it's running on Windows. Um, so, so no, this is not replacing PowerShell in any way. And I wonder if we haven't done enough to talk about how developers should be using PowerShell as part of their development workflow as well. Yeah, absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. I mean, PowerShell is a phenomenally powerful thing. Hmm. And, and I see most most folks that look at PowerShell. Most developers talk about PowerShell. Talk about the context of that's something IT people do. Yeah, not necessarily yeah, what they would do. And you know, I was, I was actually talking to the PowerShell team last week, and um, I, I will, I'll send you the link so you can put it into the show notes. But we've sure. actually just created a new command line blog for developers, um, and I'm encouraging the the PowerShell guys to to you know to write articles and so on that talk to developers as well because they've done a fabulous job talking to IT pros and script developers for IT pros but i think that there's there's some really really fascinating things happening with things like pasake mm. um, and pesta which are powershell based build and test infrastructure um, and you know once once you start delving into powershell it's an incredibly powerful tool set mm-hmm. sure um, yeah. i think one of the things that a lot of developers find when they try to use PowerShell is they try and think of it like Bash. And when PowerShell doesn't um, support a particular Bash command or it doesn't support a particular set of of, of command parameters, you know, they're, they're expecting to type uh, XYZ minus IFJ 
And when they type that on PowerShell, it doesn't behave the same way. And they go, throw their arms up in the air and say, oh, well, that's nonsense. That's useless. I'm right. not going to use that. Um, but it's in reality, when you, thing, when you dig it? into it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazingly powerful tool set because you're piping and you're controlling objects. You're not piping and controlling text. Right. And it, it can reach very deep down into Windows and, and everything that Microsoft ships, as well as lots of third parties as well, obviously. But it is a cultural thing. I think maybe yeah. if, you're, if you are in the Linux world and you at least have one foot in there, the bash on Windows is going to be wonderfully helpful for you because you already know what to do with it. But, uh, yeah. you know, somebody who's been using PowerShell for a long time, it might be sort of just something that you look at uh, as an augmentation of your processes today. Right, yeah, it, it, you know, it could well be. Maybe most of your build workflow, for example, is bash oriented because fundamentally you're building something that is going to end up running on Linux. Right, and so it kind of makes sense that that your build workflow um, is 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 primarily bash based. Yeah. Um, but there may well be cases where you know you're actually building something that is going to work on Windows primarily. And if you're doing that, then I would strongly encourage people to take a look at PowerShell. You know, it's 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 different to Bash, but it does um, it gives you a lot of the capabilities that Bash provides. It's got a, a quite a good scripting language. It's a little bit different to Bash, so it's, there's some adjustment there. But it's right. not a million miles away. But it does give you access to things you simply can't reach from Bash. And right just now. because you're building on Windows doesn't mean you're building for Windows. I mean, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's a whole yeah. new world. There's that as well. .NET is a whole new uh, whole new beast now. It goes everywhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the the core guys. I just met with them this morning as well, actually, and and the core guys are really cranking and and doing some amazing stuff in terms of getting getting core CLR working on Linux and OS X and on Windows, and um, they're really really cranking the wheel down there, which is great to see. Um, it's incredibly exciting when you run your first uh, C sharp application that you built in Visual Studio. You you copy it over to a, to a to a, a Mac or over to a Linux box, and it just runs. Good grief. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're coming to the end of the show, and all right, I got to ask you, you know, can you give us, can you throw us any kind of a bone? Tell us any kind of hint about where you guys are headed. Um, we are, we are trying to, so <laughs> I think we've kind of exposed ourselves quite broadly at, at, at uh, build. Yeah. Uh, we're trying to solidify this thing. It's, it's rough around the edges right now, but we're, we're keen to hear from you and work with you and figure out how to solidify this thing as best as we can. And at the same time as we're building the bash infrastructure, we're also doing a ton of work to the console as well, to the, to the console rendering screen as well. Mm. So we support many, many more VT100 sequences and we are a much better, uh, 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 console for rendering uh, Docker and Bash Unix type applications on Windows. Mm. Uh, SSH is coming down the path as well, you know, the native yep. Windows SSH. Yep. And of course, you can SSH from Bash. So you can use whichever one you're more, more convenient more, more convenient to you. Mm. Um, and we'll be able to render a lot more of those ASCII art type UIs. So <laughs> I, was, I just tweeted, <laughs> Hanselman tweeted the other day and tweeted the, uh, the Fire simulator. Yeah. Uh, which is which is a pure ASCII fire simulator uh, that you can get on Bash, nice. and that worked beautifully. Uh, I tweeted back at him and showed him Fortune piping the the Fortune cookie of the day message into Cowsay, so it draws a picture of an ASCII art cow with a speech bubble with whatever Fortune says. <laughs> uh, so there's, there's there's some fun stuff coming, but but keep your eye on our blog. Uh, it'll be in the show notes. Uh, keep your eye on our blog. We're going to have a ton more uh, information. 
uh, pumping down the wire here. Uh, the Windows command line is seriously back. So one last question. If you have a yeah. command line blog, how do you see more than one screen at a time? <laughs> you scroll. <laughs> oh, actually, actually, I tell you what. There's this th- on 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 Bash. There's this thing called uh, Tmux. Yeah, which is essentially is a terminal mux. It's uh, it allows you to have multiple console windows open within a console. Yep, and you can tab them and you can tile them and so on. <laughs> uh, there's another tool from a uh, uh, guy at Ubuntu. Uh, uh, who's who's built this tool called Biobo, which is Japanese for folding screen. Nice. And what he's done is he's written a a, a Python script which makes Tmux beautiful, and it really is jaw-droppingly holy cow. Um, he's got a video on the front page of the Biobo project. I'll make sure you have the link for this as well. Uh, Dustin Kirkland from from Ubuntu. Uh, I strongly encourage you to take a look at that because I'm using I'm I'm holding this over the console team and saying, okay, guys, how do we go and do something like this? Um, uh, keep your eyes playing open. that lead. It's not going to happen very soon, but 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 it's 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 a personal goal of mine. Sure, awesome, Richard Turner. It's been great. It's been fun to be back. Thanks ever so much for having me, guys. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, and congratulations on all this great work. And we'll see you, dear listener, next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a van by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a